Hello, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya, and today we are talking to Allison Myers, who is author of the book Charlinder's Walk. Allison is a fiction writer who lives in Maryland and comes from a family of compulsive readers. She attended Salisbury University, majoring in English creative writing and minoring in gender studies. In 2005, she joined the Peace Corps and went to teach English in Albania, where, inspired by her experience of culture shock and language difficulties, she started to create the character of Charlinder in her mind. Charlinder's Walk is her first book, and she is currently working on two others. Good afternoon, Allison. Good afternoon. Um, we are talking to you today about your book, Charlinder's Walk, um, our first fiction secularism-themed book here in New Books um, in Secularism. To start off, could you sort of, I mean, without giving too much away, tell us about the plot and how you got the idea of writing a story about a post-plague world? Uh, okay. Um, the the world was uh, probably the first thing that came to mind. Um, I remember way many, many years ago, back in high school, having this very ill-formed idea of um, something happening that um, that just killed off nearly all of the world's human population. And in my first vision, there were only like, um, basically there were only 20 people left in the world. Um, so that would have been the, um, the Paleola community, which is Charlinder's home village and nobody else. Um, so like I had the idea of Eileen and maybe Mark and their friends. Um, the problem was that there wasn't really a story associated with that world. It was just kind of an ongoing saga. Um, but much later, back in, I guess, 2006, um, I started thinking more of a story to go with this world. And that's when I came up with Charlinder, who is um, a young school teacher in the early, mid-22nd century. Hmm. It's interesting because you... Um I guess the the most obvious thing I would think is to, or at least most of the stuff that I've read where they have that kind of, um, that image of, well, there being a plague or something, they always talk about the survivors of that plague. But I thought it was interesting that you focus not so much on the people that were in it for during the plague, but much after, like a whole other generation where Charlinder is growing up and thinking things are, are pretty normal without technology and without all this stuff that we take for granted. Yes, um, it is normal for him. He is perhaps a bit more worldly than most of his fellow um, survivor descendants in that he spends a lot of time reading the journals of Eileen, who was one of the original survivors. And so he gets he's he has a lot of time reading about what life was like before the plague. So um, so he's more he's more interested in that more modern, developed world, um, and yet he's never been there. Um, so the post-plague world, which is very undeveloped, very um, subsistence level, it's still totally natural to him. He can't really picture what it's like to live in a world with over six billion people. Right, yeah. So much so that it's called Charlinder's Walk and not um, his, you know, plane ride to um, whatever. Airplanes don't exist anymore in this other world. Right, exactly. A yeah. walk, and it takes... Three years. 
<laughs> three years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he's a school teacher. He decides to take this walk. And, and why, why is he taking this walk? Okay. That's a very good question. Um, his uh, village is called Paleola, which is named after the river they live next to. And they're kind of different from most of the um, post-plague communities in that um, they're very secular by default. About two-thirds of the population are basically agnostics. They don't really believe. They're not really concerned about um, supernatural beings, um, whereas a third of them are the faithful, which means they have a sort of um, poorly formed but very kind of punitive, retributive monotheism. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all they're all one village. They function basically like a big extended family. But the trouble comes when they start arguing over what was the initial cause of the plague, um, because they don't have any really good epidemiological information about the disease. Um, so that leaves room for them to start discussing, oh, it must have been an act of God to punish humanity for their sins. And since it was an act of God in order to punish humanity, they need to behave themselves differently so that it doesn't happen again. Um, so they have the situation where part of the village is using the idea of the plague basically as a sword to hang over the heads of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's starting to get tense. Uh, the situation is, it's affecting the relations around the village. And um, Charlinder is getting concerned about the situation. He doesn't like to see, um, he doesn't like the direction that the debate is taking. Mm-hmm. And so he decides that the way to deal with this is to go find out what exactly was it that got the plague started, um, which means he thinks the best way to find that out is to travel to the part of the world where the disease started, um, which in this case is in northern Italy. Um, and unfortunately, Charlinder lives in the east coast of what is now the United States. Uh, so that's a very long trip. Right. But he decides the trip needs to be taken. Mm. And he's the one to do it. So he, he's an adventurous guy. He's por- probably more daring than the other people in the village. Uh, he is very brave, but also very naive. He's just never been very far. Mm-hmm. So I guess he just doesn't know enough to be afraid of what he might encounter out there. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And how, um, just like how how did you come up with that? Like I just find that really interesting. Like how because the same way that Charlinder cannot imagine a world like ours with you know airplanes and all this high technology, how did you um, try to imagine a world like his, a world where basically most of us are are gone and all of our technology is apparently gone as well? Uh, I do actually have some background in that. Um, I have a lot of experience in reenactment of earlier time periods, such as uh, Viking time period, the Anglo-Saxons in the, like, 4th and 5th centuries A.D. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do know a lot of techniques for survival in a much more primitive era. Uh So that was my basis for basically stripping the world down to no development. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was was kind of a more concrete thing for you because you do have this, this experience. 
Right. Yeah. You said also um, you were with the Peace Corps in Albania in 2006, and that also had some influence on you in terms of writing this book? Yes, that was extremely valuable experience in writing this book because um, much of much of the struggle for Charlinder is culture shock. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as he walks out of his home river valley, um, he just starts walking into what are basically foreign countries. Um, each community is is very small and isolated. They're mostly not more than a few hundred people each. Um, and within a certain territory, they generally all speak the same language, but they still each have their own culture. Uh, and so Charlinder is walking into a lot of really alien cultures in which he is clearly a foreigner. So he goes through a lot of culture shock. And then once he gets into Asia, then he no longer has a language in common with the locals. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I was in the Corps and I was knee deep in culture shock. And I was just starting to learn the language. Um, of my host country. Uh, so I dealt with language barriers all the time. Um, and so I really would not have been able to write this book without that experience. Mm-hmm. So you kind of imagine that. Um, and well, and as well, the character of Gen- Gentiola, is that how you pronounce her name? Gentiola. What? Gentiola. Hard G- Gentiola. Hard Gentiola. Okay. Okay. Gentiola. Yeah. Um, so the character of Gentiola is also apparently from um, from that part of the world. Yes. She's yeah, originally she, Albanian. She lives in Italy. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so what is her importance? Obviously, she's very important in this book. But could you talk just a little bit about her and how you came up with her character? Okay. Um, well, how I came up with her character is kind of difficult to recall. Um, yeah. Well, a while ago. It was, it was a while ago, but it was a kind of tricky stage for me where it was just after training. Just after training was finished, so I moved out of my training village and I went to the city where I did my assignment. Um, and that stage was possibly the most severe case of culture shock that I have ever experienced. Um, and I started the time by reading um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, which is like a, a grown-up fantasy book. Mm-hmm. And that took up a week. And then once that was finished, I basically had nothing to do with my time. Um, but in the course of reading that adult fantasy, I don't know, somehow the character of Gentiola came to me. Um, so her function in the story is that, like, she is supposedly the culmination of everything that Charlinder has been working towards. Um, when he reaches, he finally reaches this part of the world and then he realizes, oh my goodness, Northern Italy is a pretty big area to walk around. Um, and meanwhile, he is basically slowly starving to death. He right. is just exhausted and burned out in every possible way. Um, and while he's hitting rock bottom, he makes his way into Gentiola's home, where she is very happy to meet him. She welcomes him in. Um, hospitality is an extremely important value to Albanians, mm. and he's a foreigner, and they just love meeting foreigners. So Gentiola is really, really happy to meet Charlinder, and she takes excellent care of him. And then he discovers, oh, my goodness, Gentiola was – she is somehow still alive and youthful 
after having been alive during the plague. Right. You know, Something's not right there. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. She's like in her 150 years old range and yet still healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says, well, I was around for the plague, so I can tell you what I remember. And so this is an extremely important revelation to Charlinder. Um, but then when she tells him what she remembers, that just opens up Pandora's box, really. It just it blows him out of the water, and he has this whole other conflict to deal with. Right. Yeah, something that um, I thought was interesting is that he, he's a non-believer. Like you said, he's in his village, there's this kind of tension between people that think that God caused the plague and people that don't believe that. Um, and yet when he uh, encounters uh, Gentiola and he finds out the truth, he's not, it's not really what he's expecting. I think he was expecting a perfectly reasonable scientific explanation. <laughs> and that's not really um, what occurred. Did you intend for that to happen, for there to also be elements of the supernatural, I guess, in in the actual story? Uh, I don't see it as supernatural. I see it as paranormal, mm, which okay. I guess is a distinction without a difference. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Could you tell me what you mean by that? Like, what the distinction is for you? Well, supernatural, supernatural, in my opinion, means there are gods involved. Uh, paranormal means that there are phenomena which, um, which are not included in the laws of the physical sciences. Okay. Um, so, like, when you read fantasy stories, the phenomena you see in fantasy, that's paranormal as long as there are no gods involved. Once there are gods, then it's supernatural. Uh, okay, okay. So I, I've never, I've never known that distinction before, so that's interesting. Okay, yeah. It may be and, a distinction that I just made. <laughs> um, so, basically, the the part about him looking for... Like, why Why is he so terribly shocked at, I mean, without actually saying what happened, um, why does it open such a Pandora's box for him? Why is it so unexpected? It's something he never he um, never saw coming. Because it's, it's another set of phenomena that he has to explain, partly, mm-hmm. and also because um, it's a real upheaval to hear what really happened, because... Um, it's very difficult to explain without giving a huge. That's true. Part. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, suffice it to say, that it is there is a third option, and right. um, the story is it's a, it's a lot for a regular guy to take in. Yeah. Sure. Certainly. Um, the other the other thing that I thought was interesting is that in in the end, and I don't know if you meant for it to be this way, it's very difficult to understand whether Gentiola is good or if she's bad. She sort of that has all is, um, Yeah, that's a, a question that I encourage the reader to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. But is that something that um, you kind of think is, is true about human beings in general, that there is that murkiness? I think there is a murkiness. I think that it is possible to, well, you know the the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Yeah. 
So there's definitely that. Um, and it's possible to do, to make very frightening things happen um, for what initially seem like good reasons. Mm-hmm. Right, which is essentially what in Gentiolo's case, Gentiolo's case, excuse me. Um, so in terms of the village that Charlinder is from, could you talk a little bit about their living arrangements, which is quite different from what we have in our modern society today? Like, how did that living arrangement come to be? Um, by living arrangement, do you mean the family system? Yes, yes excuse me, yeah, the family system. Okay, that's a good question. Um, they have a non-patriarchal family system. They have very strong family values um, in, in which they, uh, they take excellent care of their children. They, um, they respect and honor their elders. They love their, you know, their, their parents and their grandparents very much, and they stick by their siblings. But the family arrangement is built around the sibling relationship rather than a married relationship. In fact, um, this community, they're very different from pretty much all other survivor communities in that they don't practice marriage at all, and they're not concerned about um, sexual fidelity. They practice avuncular parenting, which means that um, the children are raised by their mother and the mother's brother. Interesting. So that's their family, and they find that it works for them. It works just fine. Right. And but Charlinder's an only child, so that kind of makes it difficult for him, doesn't it? It does make it difficult for him, but not to such an extent that he would want to live in a different system. Mm-hmm. Um, he would like to be a family man like his uncle Roy, uh, but since he is an only child, that's impossible. So he he deals with it. Um, like it, he's not allowed to be. He can't be a family man like he'd like to be. He also likes being able to have sex with anyone he wants and not make them lie about it or feel guilty about it. He's very much a lover, not a fighter. Right. Um, so, like, the, uh, the, the sexual liberty that comes with living in that system. Right. Yeah, there's, there's one part where he is at another village, and there are, I guess it's a village where there are stricter... Um, rules about sexuality and the women have have a very limited gene pool. Um, I, yeah. I don't remember what the name of the village was, um, but there was an issue with with him because they wanted him to basically uh, <laughs> give them uh, right. sperm. Yeah, yeah. Ha, ha, what happened I there? Yeah, the Hyatt community. Oh, okay. So, so what was going on with with the Hyatt community and and him? Like, how is their system different from what he's used to? Um. Well, they are, that is another can of worms. Um, <laughs> the Hyatt community is very strict about um, who has sex with whom. Um, they have very strict laws against non-marital sex, for example. Um, so all sex has to take place within marriage, first of all. And the marriages have to be approved by the community's leadership, which is, it's a dictatorship based on inheritance. Um, and there's usually not a problem with getting marriages approved, except they also have, strict, have a um, anti-miscegenation policy in place, um, which is fine for the majority group because mm-hmm. there are a lot more of them. 
for the minority group, it's dangerous because their population is so isolated that after several generations, they've, they're forced into inbreeding. And they notice, but no one's willing to talk about it. So it's a very distressing situation for them. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sherlander kind of ends up explaining to them in a way why inbreeding is bad on a genetic level. Right. Well, he kind of tells them what they've always suspected. Yeah. He confirmed what they thought already. Um, but that's still beneficial to them because they have someone from outside who, unlike them, is literate and very learned, telling them, yes, it's because of your um, marriages between close blood relatives. Yeah. Something uh, interesting is how, well, in our society today, for example, education is really highly valued and for good reason. Um, this is very different in the Paleola community, yeah? Like his situation, he's a school teacher, and it's sometimes he feels like he's not really doing anything with his life. <laughs> uh, he is a school teacher, and uh, that's unusual in that most of the survivor communities are not literate at all, whereas in his community they do have a school and they do make sure all the children learn to read and write and do arithmetic and learn about certain subjects, Mm -hmm. Um, but they still don't value education as much as he would like them to. So he often feels like he's just a glorified babysitter. Right, right. Um, So what about Lucy, Lucy the sheep? Because she's sort of an important character, even though she doesn't say say word. (laughs) You mean Lacey? Lacey. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Lucy? Yes, Lacey the sheep. Okay. Um, Well, I guess in a different story, I could have had Charlinder take a big, strong pack animal with him Mm -hmm. to uh, carry his stuff. But in this one, he packs lightly enough that he can carry all his stuff, but he brings... At his uncle's encouragement, he uh, appropriates a dairy sheep from his village farm, and he uh, he takes her along as both a food source and and as company. Like when they're he he gets to um, to Asia just as the weather is getting colder, and he doesn't tolerate cold very well. So the sheep keeps him from freezing to death in his sleep, for example. Mm-hmm. And he milks her every day, so he always has nourishment in between solid food. And he uses her um, her milk and her wool as barter materials. So he uses them to trade for solid food from the villages he encounters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she ends up being quite an important um, part of the story, and she's sort of like his companion as well. Yes, that, and that's the part that he doesn't really... Um, like it's not really part of the deal at first, mm-hmm. but he she does end up being his only friend along that along that journey. So yes, she is extremely important to him. Mm-hmm. The part where he is with Gentiola and he starts to tell her why he went on this journey, why he took this this walk, and he starts to express to her kind of his disdain for, well, not disdain for religion, but his, you know, his worries that the faithful in his community are trying to use it kind of as a, as a weapon to get 
people to change their behavior or to be more paranoid about their behavior. And she doesn't exactly back him up on his, uh, you know, on his anti-religious views, so to speak. Um, so what is her, how does she feel about religion, Gentiola? Okay, uh, Gentiola has some really strange religious beliefs. But as far as Abrahamic religions go, she is a non-believer, much like Charlinder. However, she grew up in, first of all, she grew up in the 20th and early 21st centuries. And she spent her childhood in, um, in a dictatorship which suppressed religious practice. And she doesn't really miss the religious practice, but she's extremely sensitive about uh, like about coercing people out of their um, religious practice. And she's also very pragmatic and realistic about what social benefits and what psychological benefits religion confers. Mm -hmm. um, and so she wants to tell Charlinder, look, you need to acknowledge what you're up against. Um, you need to acknowledge what you'll be taking away from your neighbors if you ask them to give up their beliefs. Um, you know, just know what you're up against. This is this is the situation. You need to understand what's going on. Yeah. Is is that sort of how you feel as well um, in terms of being a non-believer, or are you more inclined to take Charlinder's view of things? Um, well, I'm... I guess I'm a bit between them. Um, I should point out that when Gentiola gives him these talking points, Charlinder does not take them lying down. He mm -hmm. does not agree with everything she says. Um, he does learn some things from her, but on other points he continues to disagree. Um, however, I kind of do agree with Gentiola in that I've, you know, I've lived in the country where she grew up, mm -hmm. and I've seen the effect of um, having religion stamped out rather than um, having it gradually fade away due to changing culture. And so um, so that's something that's on my mind as well as hers, mm -hmm. that there are definitely consequences to forcing people to give up their beliefs. Sure, absolutely. Um, she also says to him that he's a very privileged person. And that made me think of something that we hear often about, I think, atheism and atheists, like, well, you say that because you're privileged, you can, you're sort of allowed to, well, not allowed, but you're, you've got, it's easy for you not to believe in God, because you're not in the situation that, you know, some people in the world are in. Um, did that strike a parallel with you, or was it something that you just kind of invented for the story? I think it does strike a parallel with me. It's rather strange in this story, because at that point, Charlinder really does not feel privileged at all. He's mm -hmm. basically been home for the last two and a half years. Right. Um, yet he is, he's very privileged, even in ways that many people in the world today are not privileged. Like... He grew up with a loving family. He was usually well-nourished as a child. Uh, he grew up in a peaceful, stable society with very little crime. Um, he got an education. He has good friends. He had a good job at home. Mm -hmm. So, like, he is 
privileged in a lot of yeah. ways, even compared to many 21st century people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to me, the most um, amazing thing about him is that he managed to, you know, walk on foot for three years and not really get sick. <laughs> to me, that's, that's sort of extremely amazing. Well, he is a, uh, a descendant of plague survivors, and they were quite exceptional in managing not to get sick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how how can we, um, you know, if people want to buy your book or find out more about it, like where where can they go? Okay, is it available um, digitally? Have, mm-hmm. It is available at Amazon, both as Kindle edition and paperback at Barnes & Noble for Nook, Smashwords, um, at Lulu in print. I think that's all. Um, okay. I have a website, okay. which you can find from um, redsresources.com, and um, I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, which you can um, find from my, um, my blog. I have a lot of web presences. Okay, you can find pretty much everything from my blog, alisonmyers.wordpress.com. Okay. And that's Myers with an I, M-I-E-R-S? Yeah, my name is tricky, but um, if you find my blog, The Monsters, Inc., which is alisonmyers.wordpress.com, then everything else can be found from there. Okay, okay. Um, Allison, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about your book. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to an interview with Allison Myers, author of Charlinder's Walk. This is Annie Sapukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism. <laughs>